You're listening to audio from Redwood Baptist Church. If you need any more information about us, go to weareredwood.org. We hope that the message that you're about to hear will strengthen you, encourage you, and make you more like Jesus. Blessings. Praise the Lord for that. I just have one more announcement. Actually, I got two announcements. I am so excited. By the time you guys come to church next week, every single toilet in the place will be working. Everyone said? Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hey, this building was built in the 50s, and so uh, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, just waiting patiently, and so praise God. Uh, tomorrow, the whole crew's going to come, and we're, our, our school that's down in the lower property, uh, they're off for Veterans Day, and so uh, we had to schedule it because you've got to turn off all the, uh, the, the water to the whole property, and so we're going to just get them all fixed, the sinks, urinals, everything is going to be a-okay. Well, let's pray to that in, because that's what they're at least coming to do tomorrow, okay? And uh, hopefully uh, you will uh, notice that. And then also, uh, I'm assuming you over the, over the years, you've seen the uh, deterioration of our chairs. We've had these for about 10 years or so. And, um, and so we are, uh, you can just look around, you can probably see some that have holes and rips in them. And so we are down to uh, the last ones that look decent. All of our other bad ones are up there, like two, three levels behind you. And uh, so we are also getting new chairs that are going to be delivered uh, this, th- this week. And so a lot of it is this, just the beating of the sun over the course of every single day, every single year. And so a couple weeks ago, we had um, some blinds installed in here. And believe it or not, when those come down, no sunlight comes in. And so we're going to be able to uh, allow these chairs to just last for uh, many more years. And so we're excited about that. But the announcement that comes along with that would be if you are able and you're willing to, uh, after uh, the service, if you could kind of just take maybe the offering envelope that's in the seat in front of you and maybe even one of the the hymn books, even if any pens, we're going to put those here up on the Lord's table and then we're going to take these chairs and we're going to kind of make nice stacks over here so we can get them out of this door uh, easily this week. So if some of you, especially men, if you could just, if you could stay, and uh, that would be a tremendous, tremendous help to us this week uh, as we try to uh, just, uh, just take, you know, uh, we're bringing some new chairs and I'm excited about that. Mark chapter number seven, Mark chapter seven, we have been uh, outside of our verse by verse study through this book for, uh, for several weeks now. We had uh, you know, we had some some messages on uh, kind of redeeming the the culture and the race war that's going on in our world. Last week, I felt uh, led to preach on just thankfulness and the audibly uh, saying thank you. And so uh, this morning we are back into our text of Mark chapter number eleven. We've been in a series that we simply entitled Jesus. And uh, I have uh, so enjoyed uh, this study. I want to ask you a question. Everyone find Mark 7 by now? I want to ask you a question. And it's a super, super easy one. Sometimes when I start off a message that way, you all get nervous with the question. You don't need to get nervous about this one. I promise you, you can answer this one. All right, how many of you, you can say, I have been in church, doesn't have to be Redwood, but just in church for at least 10 years or more, would you raise your hand? 
All right, you say, all right, so you've been in church. Okay, you can put your hand down. You know, for at least 10 years or more, 20, 30 years. If you just raise your hand, I want you to look at me. I believe the Word of God is for everybody that's here, but this message is particularly designed for you. Again, if you haven't been in church for less than 10 years, I promise you, you'll absolutely get um, from the Word of God um, out of everything. I, I, think when you're, I think when we're said and done, I believe we're going to know why we were here this morning, and my prayer is to be used of the Lord to go through this text and for it to be a blessing as well as a challenge to us. I've entitled the message this morning, Getting to the Heart of the Matter. Getting to the Heart of the Matter. There is a massive danger to the body of Christ that is lurking. It will distort your view of yourself, and it will remove from you a sense of need for God's grace. There, it is a very seductive temptation that has troubled the church for generations. And so what is this danger that I am alluding to early on in this message? Well, it's got various names. It's got a name that we would maybe call legalism, moralism, externalism. These things often define the way that we think about ourselves as well as others. I'd like to say that I am free from these issues, but I am not, and nor do I think that you are. We find ourselves in what is really a very pivotal, pivotal, excuse, pivotal <laughs> passage in Mark. Because this passage begins to march us to the cross because it defines the collision between Christ and the Pharisees. The collision that would finally make them determine that this man absolutely had to die. It also defines the need for the cross. Because if the diagnosis of Jesus is right, that he gives in this text, there is no hope for us but the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you've been in this study for these many, many months, you kind of you know the history. The Pharisees, they had rejected the claims of Christ. They had rejected that he was the one. He was, uh, Andrew alluded to in his uh, Sunday school hour of where he was quoting from Isaiah. And then Jesus says, all of that's being fulfilled right now before your eyes. They had rejected that, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now they were following him, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, so they could trap him. So they could try to find Christ in some form of blasphemy. And they think that they have him in this moment. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The words will also be up on the screen. Then came together unto him the Pharisees, and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups, and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why 
Walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashen hands. Now, you and I need to know that, that this is not a law that these people actually, this is not a law of God that these disciples had actually broken. What had happened is, is the scribes had begun to, they, they began to study the law and they had interpreted the law. And then they reinterpreted the law. And then they reinterpreted it again. And then they had applied it. And then they reapplied it. And they reapplied it again until it became this superstructure of regulation that honestly, it completely overwhelmed the people. And one of the things was this idea of washing. And it's almost as if kind of Mark, you've got to understand who would have been sitting there. Often, sometimes we, we, we read these, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read these accusations, and we sometimes separate the author, the human author, from them. And yet, Mark would have been sitting here. He's kind of retelling this story, and he kind of adds this editorial, you know, comment here. He's like, oh, by the way, it's not only hands, it's washing of pots and tables and, you know, uh, um, you know uh, washing cups, copper vessels, and so on and so forth. He's like, they kind of become washed obsessed with just washing things and so here there's a key to understanding this a person's morality began to be judged by their keeping of all of these traditions by them knowing them and keeping them there was a morality that began to be connected to these individuals so that is the that is the context in which we find here in Mark 6. And so this passage becomes a wonderful way of looking at what this moralism does to biblical faith. And as, I, as we walk through this text, we're just going to go kind of line by line, verse by verse, concept by concept. I want you to allow us to look at it through this lens. It is very clear that in the Pharisees' critique of the disciples, that number one, moralism causes you to be more concerned with the behavior of others than the spiritual condition of your own heart. Right? I want you to just allow me to, 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 to preach and to teach and to go through the text here this morning. Right? So moralism causes you to be more concerned with the behavior of others than the spiritual condition of your own heart. I want you to think about the men who were making this minute little critique of the disciples who had gone through this, um, the detail of cleansing the hands, had gone, had gone without that. By the way, there were pages and pages and pages were written about how you could properly and how you should properly wash your hands. But who were these people? that were making this critique? Who were the ones that were bringing this information or this accusation before Christ? They were the individuals that were in great spiritual peril. They were actually the ones that were standing against the only hope of the universe, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. They were withstanding the very one that had been preached about in all of the Old Testament of a Redeemer that was going to come and save His people from their sins. They were in deep spiritual peril, but they felt no peril because there was such confidence in their keeping of the traditions. 
So rather than looking inside, rather than looking inward, their eyes were observing and critiquing outwardly, watching closely the behavior of others. And so moralism is always connected to a condemning spirit. Moralism is always connected to a condemning spirit. I want to ask you a question. Is that spirit in you? Are you at moments more vigilant in your consideration of the behavior of others than the condition of your own heart? Moms and dads, could it be that you actually begin to think that you are not like your children as much as you really are? Often when I see the sins in my children and what they do within a given week, I, I got to take a step back and I got to think, man, I, it's just like me too. They have a hard time playing with each other's toys. And you know what? I, I don't play well either with others. I like my stuff. And so sometimes we stand afar off from our children. Wives, are you watching the behavior, the words, and the actions and the reactions of your husband and more convicted for him than you are convicted for yourself? Are you more irritated by his sin, weaknesses, and failures than you are broken by your own sin? And husbands, I could say the same for us. Do you walk around comparing yourself to others in the body of Christ? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? No. I know. Are you comparing? Or do you live with a deep awareness that every day of your life is a day in need of grace. While these men are critiquing the disciples, they're blind to the depth of their own peril. And so if we're going to be moralistic, where everything is of moral nature, this externalism, another word for it, another kind of synonym would be like a legalistic type of way, but the word I'm going to drive home is the word moralism. Then we are focused so much on others and we don't so much focus on our own heart. Let me say, secondly, moralism always emphasizes external behavior and ignores the heart. It focuses on external behavior. Obviously, we're going we're gonna to be looking at others, but even if we do start to look at ourselves, it is more of the external nature, and it ignores the heart. Jesus said in verse number 7, again, the Pharisees, they asked the question, and he says in verse number 6, he answered and said to them, well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Those of you that were at 10, you remember Andrew alluding to that? And Jesus, he's, he's quoting it here. He's quoting what Isaiah prophesied. He's like, hey, hey, you honor me with your lips, but your heart, remember, we're the heart of the matter. It is, it is far from me. True Christianity, it's always a matter of the heart. God will not be satisfied with just words, behavior, knowledge, or wisdom, or, or, or religious acts. He always, always wants the heart. It's not enough to just jump through behavioral hoops when really your heart is being ruled by other gods. And that is why those shocking words of Isaiah 1, they just rattle our hearts and our cages when God tells us in Isaiah 1, verse 13, bring no more vain oblations. So in other words, he says, hey, 
Don't bring your, can I put it this way? Don't bring your worship that is empty, of no value. He says here, bring no more vain or empty or worthless oblations. Incense is an, ad, is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, excuse me, even the solemn meeting. Why does God say that? Because they were not an expression of the heart. Because the heart, your heart, listen to me, your heart this morning, it's a, it's a worship center. You're always worshiping. You do not only worship on Sundays. And by the way, we just, it was awesome. I loved seeing with you back there. I just kind of was pacing back and forth. I was like, man, I love it. But we don't only worship on Sundays. You worship your way through every moment of every single day. May I ask you this morning, at street level, and the hallways, and the kitchens, and the bedrooms, and the family rooms, the van, the cars of your everyday life, what functionally rules your heart? What is it that you really want? What is it that you long for? And we've talked about that as we've gone through the book of Mark. Is Jesus Christ the Lord, the reigner supreme of even those moments? I'll be honest with you, it's easy to do it on Sunday. It's easy. And we come together and we're, we're believers. And it's awesome. But what about tomorrow? Tuesday? Faith, to be true faith, is first a matter of the heart. Obedience, to be true obedience, is a matter of the heart. And that is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, He, he moves the fences, so to speak, of the law to not just behavior but he moves it to the heart. When Jesus is like, hey, listen, it's more than just the physical act of adultery. He's like, hey, let me, let me move the fence on you on that. What, what, what it really is, it's the heart. The heart. You might not be fi- doing the physical act, but in your heart, if you're doing it, in your heart, if you're lusting, what did Jesus say? You've committed adultery in your heart already. So he moves the fence. He says, hey, the real problem, it's a problem of the heart. It is a heart matter and so moralism focuses on others rather than ourselves and then as we're focusing on others it's the exterior and it's not the heart are we ready we're ready okay we're ready to keep moving because this has been easy so far you say it has i promise you it has number three moralism elevates doable human tradition to the status of God's law. Moralism elevates doable human tradition to the status of God's law. Let's look at verse number 7. We're just going to go right through the text. Verse number 7. How be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, Here's basically what Jesus said. Hey, hey, we've elevated the traditions or the commandments of men, the, 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 the extra interpretation and the application, all that. We've elevated that to the doctrines. In other words, we're saying, hey, hey, this is now the law of God, the tradition of men. Those applications, those interpretations of the law, those begin to rise in importance. And at some point, some point along the journey, they begin to be viewed Oftentimes, it's maybe a generation or two later, 
they then begin to be viewed as now the law of God. Now listen to me. If you and I are trusting in our ability to keep God's law, then it would make absolute sense that I would want to get it right. I would think about it, and I would define it, and then I would redefine it, then I would interpret it, then I would reinterpret it, then I would apply it to my life, and then I would reapply it into where that natural way of living became so normal to me that it was kind of at the standard of God. It would make sense if that's what God was after. Now let me give you a few examples of this. You know, so I'm smiling. I'm smiling right now. This is, this is one of the moments, man, I've been, I've been super nervous about this. I already talked to Mike about it this week. I've talked to my family about it this week. Hey, listen, this is one of those moments that, that some might get a little uncomfortable. And that's okay, right? Please tell me it's all right. Well, it doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyways, all right? Are we ready? Ready? If you're ready, raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Let me give you some examples. Let me, try to, let me try to flesh this out in like tangible. I don't think any of us have issues with washing our hands. If you use the restroom, please wash your hands. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, my kids are listening. Awesome. Okay. Let's take the example of, you ready? Mike's already smiling because he knows where I'm going. Dress in a worship service. Honestly, when I saw Mike this morning, I was like, Mike, what are you doing wearing slacks? Normally he wears jeans, right? I'm like, you're killing my illustration today. Now it is absolutely right that as you come to a worship service, you should want everything that you do to be an expression of honor and service and love and worship of God. You should want everything that you do as you come to a corporate worship service to acknowledge your deep need of him and to point to his glory. And so surely you would want to come to a worship service and you would want to be modest. Surely you should not want to draw attention to yourself, right? Now maybe the way that you personally apply that, wanting to honor God in that way is that you come to Sunday morning in maybe a dress or in a suit. You know, every Sunday it is a, you know, it's a, it's a dress or it's a skirt or it's a, it's a dress shirt and it's a tie and it's a suit. Listen to me, that is completely appropriate. An honoring of an application of the principles of worship. 100%. But it's not the law. It's not the law. And you must not make it that. If your application, I want to applaud you. Awesome. But it's not the law. We, we, we okay? Doing all right? All right. You must not judge people who have made a, difference applica- a different application of that as long as the application that they have made is within the boundaries of those principles of worship, drawing, uh, we want God to be honored. We want God to be glorified. We can go to certain scriptures and texts about that. And we've got, we've got to be careful of this. I think sometimes this can be hard for us. By the way, I think we can be moralistic the other way as well. 
So those of us that have maybe made an application that, you know, that, I'm, I'm actually, I'm comfortable in my skin. This is who I am. I could wear a suit. I could, this is who I am. It's fine. But if I'm like this, and I, I see Ron in the back there. Ron, no, I'm not picking on him. Okay, so I'm in like doctors and just a, you know, like a button-up shirt here. I can't stand over here and be moralistic in my application and be like, Ron, it's 2019, almost 2020, bro. Why are you still wearing a suit to church? Do you see the danger of both sides? Listen, if your application, if you're fully persuaded in your own heart and you can go to Scripture and my application of, hey, when I come to a corporate worship service, man, I want to honor God, and you feel like what you're fully persuaded in the Holy Spirit and what you're doing, listen, don't worry about somebody else. Apply it for yourself. And by the way, for those that would be maybe more conservative in here, awesome don't feel like you have to dress down no way and those of you that would like to dress down a little bit fine too let's be okay with it because it's not law great applications interpreting and applying for your life but let's make sure that we don't elevate something to the law we okay all right let, let, let us move on to another topic here Woof. parenting Oh, Ryan, there's people who say, hey, man, you want to break friendships? Just start talking about parenting. Well, let's hope that we have enough relationship. You know the love that I have for you that we can talk honestly about this topic. So maybe the way that you have applied your call to God to be a godly parent is by homeschooling. By the way, our family does that. So it's very real for us. You think that it is a way that you can use certainly the government requirement of education. We've got to educate our children. But you, we think that we can use that government requirement to instill in our children a Christian worldview that has at its center the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that is surely a wonderful application of your God-given personal responsibility. But it's not a law. And you must not look judgmentally towards or condemn people who have decided to fulfill their biblical responsibility by sending their children to a public school or a Christian school or a charter school or whatever there is out there. We must be careful. So now let me get a little bit more personal for me. Let me, let me focus on myself here for a moment. What about preaching? How do you define what a good sermon is? Or the kind of preacher that you're prepared to listen to. Some of us tend to like more traditional, reserved, academic preaching. And that's a wonderful thing. That is a very good application of all the things that God calls a preacher to do. But some of you, you don't prefer that. And you'd like to have more of a contemporary form of preaching with a heavier application, which is in and of itself an okay, wonderful application of what a pastor and what a preacher should do, should drive home for some application. But neither of those are a what? Law. Music. Moving on. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Moving on, right? Music. Music. You and I, we've got to be very careful that in areas like this, eating, drinking, things, listen, that we do not do exactly what the Pharisees did 
that we begin to elevate our application to the same level as God's standard. Often We often elevate it way higher. Sometimes it's way lower and we need to get that up. For sure, let the Holy Spirit do that in your life. Which in return, when we begin to do that, and we elevate ours, we begin to judge people. And we don't judge them in their failure to keep God's law, but in their failure to keep my particular application of God's law. Now, since I've offended most everybody, no, I'm just kidding. I really hope I haven't. I, I've really, I just... I hope I haven't. Jesus said, how be it in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Let's just be really, 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 really careful where we're going to hone in on, hey, this is, this, is the, this is a law. This is a commandment of God. Yeah, I think, we've, I think we've done all right. We're doing okay. I'm probably super red-faced, but that's like every Sunday, so it's all good. Number four, number four, moralism ultimately tries to go around the law. So I didn't read the text, the long text beforehand because I wanted us to kind of methodically think through this. All right? So now, ultimately, moralism, if we're not careful, it tries to go around the law. Let's see that. Look, verse number eight. Again, we're just going verse by verse. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many others, such like things ye do. And he said to them, full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. And here's his example. For Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, excuse me, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. I'll, I'll explain all this here in a moment. Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. I want you to try to follow this train of thought. I'm going to go back to simply an example that I gave, and let's kind of see how moralism kind of fleshes itself out. It will be up on your screen. Try to follow the train of thought. If you are a legalist, you can put in moralist there, in the way that you think about dress, and someone is near you, and they have offended you, not because they have broken God's law, but because they have offended your application. Does that make sense? So again, let, let, let me reword it. So like, we've got... We've got a, a standard that's in our mind and we've elevated that above what God would elevate on certain things. And so then what happens is, is someone is around you and they haven't met your standard and so there is an offense. Okay, so we're following? Let's follow this along. You then are not warm and friendly. And you're not loving to them and you're not offering them the mercy and grace of the body of Christ. You, you, you follow in that train of thought? All right, so you've, you've got some unattainable type of standard for everybody. And we've got to be careful. When I say you, I'm speaking generally, unless the Holy Spirit's touching your heart. All right, and then what happens is, is then we become, we, be, we get offended 
by what they are doing or what they are not doing. And then we withhold our love. We withhold our acceptance. We withhold the way that the body of Christ actually should be loving and caring for people. That comes to thought number three. The traditions that you are holding on to have caused you to break the clear commands of God to be loving and accepting. And so I think if we're honest with ourselves, this does happen. It happens in my life. And I would plead with you at this moment to search your heart. Where is that dynamic of temptation in your life? I'm telling you, it's, it, it's lurking in churches. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, you have in, in a fine way, you, you, you've, you're rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish the tradition of man. And the example that he gives is he said a Corbin, which was simply a man's ple- a tradition, a man's tradition, a pledge that someone would make to give a gift to the temple. And so the son or daughter can come and he would say, hey, I know that I'm supposed to take care of you. I know that I'm supposed to honor my father and my mother in their old age. It's the right thing to do. to to love and to care for them as they get older, but a son or daughter, they would come and they would just say, hey, I can't help you because I've given all my money to the temple. And so what Jesus is saying, he said, hey, by the way, that, 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 that Corbin gift, that is a man's tradition, and you have elevated that to where now you are breaking my clear cut command of to honor and to love your parents certainly in their uh, always but in their old age and so you see this very clear example and notice the words that jesus says at the end of verse number 13 and many such like things do ye he's like hey hey i'm giving you i'm giving you one example of a way that you side skirt the actual clear teachings of the word of God so we can keep a tradition of man. And so here's my challenge for us this morning. I know you've, you've, you've listened so well and I've tried to kind of take you down through the text here. I don't believe that Jesus said that the world would know that you are a follower of him by all the rules we keep. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said the world will know that you are my disciple. The world will know that you are a follower of Jesus. The world will know that you are a radical lover of Jesus. And man, I think our church is full of people like this, by the way. Love Jesus. But the world will know that we love him. By our love for one another. By the way, someone that is maybe a little bit more casual in the way that they do things, loving someone who's a little bit more conservative in some things. And then Mr. and Mrs. Conservative is going to be loving and compassionate and caring to someone that does some things that are a little bit different. We okay? All right. Just try. Just trying to just biblically bring this to us here. This is. It, it, it is like 
It seems like the longer we've been at it, the longer we've been in church, the longer we've heard things, the longer we've read things. Again, I'm not trying to even disparage any of necessarily that. Let's just never feel like our applications, which are good, by the way, don't change. Don't change because of this message. Don't come next week in ripped jeans unless you want to. But listen, I am not in any way saying that that, that, that's wrong. Awesome. Let's just not in any way say that this is what the standard is and then side skirt the other things. All right, let's move on. Number five, we're almost done. Praise God, we can't wait to get out of church today. I get it. Number five, moralism misdefines and mislocates our struggle with sin. You have Christ making this very clear in the final verses that kind of follow this example that he gives to the Pharisees. They've come in and like, hey, they're not washing their hands properly. What's wrong? And then he articulates the issue here. Look at verse number 14. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, hearken unto my, hearken me every one of you and understand. There is nothing from without a man that entered into him, entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they which defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive in whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him? Because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all the meats. Literally, literally went to the restroom. And he said, that which cometh out of the man that defileth the man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceedeth evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. See, if we're not careful, we're tempted to think that our greatest, deepest, and most abiding difficulty exists outside of us rather than inside of us. And Jesus is saying just the opposite. And that is what is outside of you cannot, in a sense, defile you. He's not saying that you and I should just be cavalier with evil or anything like that. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what he's teaching. It's a very important point. It is only ever the evil within that hooks you to the evil without. It's only ever the evil within. What is James puts it similarly, right? Out of the uh, you know, uh, out of the heart, right? And talk about, about lust of the heart and how we become enticed. It comes from within. Our problem is an internal problem. And so acts of external behavior do not solve the problem. If, problem. if our problems were just behavior, then the law could absolutely provide the rescue. But your problem is not behavior. Your problem is your very nature. Your problem is the essence of who you are. Your problem is you. And so Jesus came to rescue you from you. Jesus came to rescue me from me. My problem is not first murder. My problem is first a murderous heart that allows me to hate another human being made in the image of God. Boy, our country has a problem with this. My problem is not first physical sexual immorality, but an immoral, lustful heart that wants things that are outside of God's will for me. 
My problem is not physical stealing, but a materialistic and covetous heart that seems never to be satisfied. Have you ever tried to just have one chocolate chip cookie? Hey, maybe just buy one and then you'd be forced to, right? It's hard. Why? You just always want more. You see, if you get a hold of this, and this is my prayer the next few moments, is that if you and I, if, if we would get a hold of this, not your pastor chastening you this morning, no, but that we would get a hold of this, the fact that we are that we're still in need of daily rescue. Thank you for the salvation in Jesus Christ. We don't need to get saved again. But just the daily, the daily wrestle of this flesh and this sin that we're going to wrestle for the rest of our lives, that it will break us to the point where we are humble and we are gracious and loving to other broken people. You and I would see each other as the same. How could it be that we would take a message of deep, personal, and undeserving grace and turn it into something that we can condemn others with? See, the, fa- the fact of the matter is, is that I have no argument to make before God but Christ. That's my only argument. Christ, his righteousness applied to my account. So this chapter, we didn't finish it this morning, but this chapter of Mark 7, it was meant to be a diagnostic. You should literally look into Mark 7 like a mirror. And you should, you literally should, as you're looking in that mirror, you ought to be able to say, hey, I'm not free from this yet. Man, I still struggle. And realize that it is still Christ, it is still the gospel that is going to renew you and to uh, literally the tracks with which you will live your life on. I said to you that this passage drives us to the necessity of the cross. It is impossible for us to achieve acceptance with God by the keeping of the law. And the reason why is because the perverseness of your heart and mind. And so the only hope for you and the only hope for me and the only hope for the world around us was that God would send His Son who was going to have a pure heart. God was going to send His Son that was going to keep the law perfectly. And Jesus was going to be the acceptable sacrifice that God required for the atonement of sin. He was purchasing for us our forgiveness, our righteousness, and our deliverance for eternal life. As I've said the last several weeks, I can say what Paul has said. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Our church, I love our church. I am thankful for our church, but I do not think we are totally free from these distortions. And so you and I, we ought to cry for grace that God would own our hearts, that our hope would be in Him and Him alone. And because our hope is in Him and Him alone. We'd be able to look in to the Word of God as a mirror. And we can find our confidence in Him and Him alone. And we can do life 
with people that are, you ready? Different. It's beautiful. A church is a beautiful thing. When you have people that are, let's make sure we're living according to the clear-cut commands of God. I'm not trying to side-skirt that at all. I don't think any of you would have gained that this morning. But where it's areas where it's not clear-cut, hey, interpret it for your life. Apply it for your life. Just don't be so moralistic that you elevate it to God's law, which then will cause judgment to those that have not. If Mark's diagnosis is right, and it is, you and I, we have no hope but for Jesus. And so if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're seated here today, you've let me preach a long time, I appreciate it, but if you're seated here and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, in a moment, I'm going to slip out and I'm going to be in the back there. I'd encourage you to come back. I'm going to show you from the Word of God how you can know that Jesus is your Savior. Because this text, it drives straight to the cross. Because the heart is desperately wicked. And we need a rescuer. And that rescuer is found in Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed.